Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3, 19-22 You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple to, ki- to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing? Doing well, Zelwyn. Good to be back on with you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, Willie can't be with us today. He has returned to the Hollow Earth to continue his trek down there, and uh, Lord willing, he should be back pretty soon. But how's the weather in the Commonwealth? It's going well. I knew Willie forgot a few things down there. He's uh, yeah. He there's something dwarvish about him, isn't there? He he's spending a lot of time down there, and I'm sure he's seeing these various peoples. Western Kentucky is is uh, doing just fine. So it was cold a little bit. Uh, every morning we have a, a tiny amount of frost. I even had to scrape my windshield off the other day. Zelwyn felt just bitterly cold and oppressed, but it's, it warms up, gets stays above freezing. So I'm happy. Well, no, I can understand that. We've we've had a pretty mild winter so far. I mean, we've had snow that's actually stayed on the ground for a little while now, but it isn't very much. And we're praying that we'll we'll get at least a little bit more, so it'll help the crops in in the coming spring. Yeah, I did. I do have to mention this to you and encourage all our listeners to do the same. I at the beginning of the new year, I I went to I took my brother and my sister. Well, no, just my brother's family to the the land between the lakes here. And we went to the portion of the land between the lakes where there's a prairie and we saw the bison made sure to pay homage to uh, the bison at the beginning of the new year. I, I don't know that it's good luck, but it sure can't hurt. Can it? No, I don't think so. (laughs) You, you will have good, good fortune now that you you have seen my people face to face. So, well, they were, (laughs) they were mostly walking away from us. So, (laughs) Not caring about anything. Which, which, yeah, that could be a bad omen. I'm not sure. We'll see how it plays out. (laughs) Oh, very good. But anyway, we're here to talk today about the book of Revelation and continue our discussion on the book. Last time we had talked about uh, some parts of it at length, kind of also talked about the book kind of in general, some of the general figures. But we figured today that we were going to cover some of the more specific details of the book, especially the opening chapters. And in particular today, we're going to be looking at the the seven letters to the seven churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. Because I think, and I think you'll agree with me, David, on this, that these letters, even though they're written to specific situations and specific churches, have a lot to teach us today as well, right? You suppose rightly. (laughs) Well, I mean, so how do we, how do we approach the, the, the seven churches, like why, why is John writing to them in the way that he does? And, you know, what, what is the general purpose of these letters? Yeah, I think just at the beginning here, it, it would be good to, I don't know, admit or acknowledge this is probably, you know, if you're, if you're thinking of it, um, just on a surface level, these are the easiest chapters of the book to understand, right? Because you don't have the apocalyptic sure. imagery come out, but <laughs> they also kind of paradoxically are probably the part of the book that most people, you know, when you think of Revelation, I don't think anybody thinks, oh yeah, that's where you have the seven letters to the seven churches. You know, your mind is drawn to the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and the great vision at the end and, and all these other things. So it's a little less visionary here at the beginning. And so in some ways it's, it's a good intro to the book. It's a, it's an easy path in before you really start getting into the weeds. Sure. Now, as to remind me of your question again, why are these important for us? <laughs> yeah, what, what's their purpose? What is John doing yeah. here as he begins the book this way? Well, I think he really is preparing the way for what's everything that is to follow. And, you know, you could, you could do this, Selwyn, and you shouldn't, but you could sort of truncate the all of the letters you could say they all basically say the same thing right repent 
And so right at the beginning of the of his vision, the beginning of the revelation, the opening message is repent. And I think that that prepares you for the rest of the book. That's true. But if you look at them just specifically, almost like the way we we sort of chop things up into pericopes for readings in church, each of them does kind of stand alone too, right? So within the book, they prepare you for what's to come, but you can also look at them and gain value just from seeing how does Jesus speak to the individual congregations, right? It's almost like you have here, not just the epistles of the apostle, but you have epistles from Christ himself. Right, right. And, and I mean, the, the, the whole two chapters here are specifically written as the voice of Jesus speaking, which I think is right. an extremely important point here. But I guess the, the next question that I should ask is, you know, where exactly are these cities? I mean, where, where is John at the time of his writing? And where are these cities in relation to him? And, and why yeah. does that matter? Right. So John is on an island. He's on Patmos. And mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about the time, you know, the two theories of when the book was written, whether you kind of the traditional date, which is around the year 95, or, you know, if you want to go with an earlier date, you know, you're talking about in the 60s. But the island of Patmos is off of the coast of what is what is modern day Turkey. So at this time, I think it's still pretty much under Greek, I mean, Roman control, but it's a heavily Hellenized area. So the names are very Hellenistic names, right? We've got Ephesus, we've got Smyrna, we've got Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven cities that get mentioned here. And they are all on the mainland. So John is writing from the island across the waters to the mainland and to the churches back in what was then called Asia Minor. Right, right. And I, I think it's worth noting here, too, that Ephesus is right across the, the water from Patmos. Patmos is basically, you know, directly to the west of Ephesus. Right. And uh, Ephesus is also the, the major city of the region, kind of, you might consider it the capital city, which is probably why John writes to it first. But then you can actually follow these cities in a kind of circuit around, starting, mm-hmm. you know, going, going northward towards Smyrna. And then uh, northward again towards Pergamum, and then going generally to the southeast uh, through the other cities down to Laodicea. So you could see here whoever was carrying this letter from John was probably following this specific path for that reason. You know, he would start at Ephesus, then he would go to Smyrna, and so on and so forth. So these are also they're all important cities too uh, in the region, like Pergamum, especially in the north. And we'll talk about Pergamum when we get to it. But these are the, the major centers where there were Christian churches within that region. But we're not talking about a very large region at all. You know, this could all fit within, I mean, uh, maybe within, I don't know, like 50, 60 miles of each other, if you drew a circle. Yeah, I right. think, I, and the when you lay it out that way, Zelwyn, it does help you see like this, whoever carried the letter would have gone straight from just in the same order to make the circuit around to the churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, my, but my point with that is to say that this is a very localized kind of letter. Oh, you sure. Know, it's, it's speaking to very local concerns, to very local problems. And yet, why can we still say that it speaks to us kind of in a universal way as well? Yeah, I think this is, this comes up sometimes in our discussions uh, when we talk about like, the the whole question about when Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, mm-hmm. is he talking only about Jerusalem or is he talking about the end of the world? And, you know, you kind of get this blending together of those things. And a, there's something similar, I think, here in the way that we understand what's happening in the seven churches. They are certainly epistles are directed to the problems that exist and the good things that exist in those local congregations. But the same challenges that they had back then and the same good things that existed in those congregations uh, continue to be the case in the church now, you know, 2000 years later. 
Do you think it's a, a situation where we can draw direct lines and say, like, we're living in the time of Ephesus, for example, or we're living in the time of Laodicea? Or do you think it is more of a, a general kind of a, a bigger picture of all of them together? I think it's I think it is more general. I don't I wouldn't really go in for the whole like um, sort of a dispensational sort of understanding of these things. And I, I say the word dispensational, but I don't mean like premillennial dispensationalism. But there is, uh, a, there is a similarity here with the seven letters. And I mentioned before the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Um, a lot of times people want to do, do just that, Selwyn, that you mentioned to say like, okay, these are going to chronologically advance one upon the other. And so there's oftentimes this kind of interpretation of the book as a whole, but also of these letters to say, well, at first the temptation was, or the situation was what was going on in Ephesus. And then at some point in history, it went on to Smyrna, the, the things that are addressed in the letter to the Smyrnans. And, uh, and eventually it will get to the Laodiceans. And, and I, I think that's a mistake to say, you know, we are going through the different ages or different time in church history. I think that just like with the the seals, you have much more of this cyclical understanding in the that's happening in the book of Revelation where these things are kind of always happening on top of each other. So you're going against Luther is that's all I needed to hear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did he No, you got it you what did he say? Well, Luther Luther kind of advocated for what's sometimes called a more uh, his, historicist approach, mm -hmm. where this was this time, this was this time, and it kind yeah. of moves forward. And then this is kind of where we are, quote unquote, within the book. That's not a, a terribly popular position today, but it is something that was pretty common in the time of the Reformation. So I was I was just egging you on with it. All so. right, good, good. <laughs> now that. Now it gives it gives ammo to those who want to send us emails. That's good. <laughs> we gotta give our detractors something to go on. So, um, so with that, then maybe we should delve into the letters themselves. So let's begin then with the first letter to the church in Ephesus. How would you characterize this letter before we break it down into its you know more its smaller pieces? And what would you say is the basic message of this particular letter? Well, they all they all have a similar form. Maybe we should say that first, Zelwyn. All of the letters they they have kind of five components. There's first of all the identification of the speaker, and mm -hmm. some some aspect of what John had just seen in his vision of the glorified Jesus is brought out. So first, so in Ephesus, for example, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. Okay, and John had just seen Jesus doing exactly that. And then it's going to address, here's what's good within your church. And then it has this phrase, here's what I hold against you. Here's what I have against you. So it's almost like sometimes this comes up in the prophets where the Lord brings a charge against his people, right? And, and I forget the you know, the, the term for this, there's some technical term for what's happening there in the prophets, but it's similar here in Revelation. You have almost a courtroom sort of a thing. I'm bringing a charge against you. So commended for, for something, charged with some failure. Then there's a call to repentance, with a th usually with a threat, if you don't. So repent or else. And then it wraps up, the fifth component is a promise to those who who endure. Right. Right. And then also the kind of the closing, you know, he who, he, he who has ears to hear, yes. let him hear what the spirit says to the churches right. is all in all of them. So, okay. So with that kind of general outline in mind, then that's going to be common to all of them, what makes the letter to Ephesus different? Well, the Ephesians are by and large, they are commended that it's for the most part, it is a good, things are going well in that congregation. So, it says, I know your works, I know your toil and your patient endurance. And that that word comes up so much in the book of Revelation that it's, it's worth emphasizing here at the beginning. Christ encourages them to continue to endure and to be patient. So toiling, patient endurance, you can't bear those who are evil. You've tested 
those who call themselves apostles but aren't, um, and you've found them to be false. But what he has against the church is that, and I think our listeners are probably going to be familiar with, with this language, you have fallen from your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So he tells them to repent by remembering that first love and doing the things that they did at first. Sure. And what would you say is the, I mean, what's the basic situation going on at Ephesus? If we're going to read between the lines a little bit, I mean, what is what is the most pressing problem of this congregation, in your opinion? Well, I think that there's there are uh, many, it sounds like there's many false teachers who are going around, right? So there's, it's called here, those who call themselves apostles, but aren't. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's constantly questions about, who should we really listen to? Who is coming with the proper authority and the proper teaching? And I mean, you could imagine a time where you're where you have all kinds of people clamoring, listen to me, pay attention to me over here. And so there's and Christ commends them for testing what's being said, right? Not just blindly following anyone who says, hey, listen to me. Um, but if you lived in that situation where you're constantly having to test and try what's being said, you can, you can, I think it's easy to understand how the mindset of that congregation would be kind of constantly in conflict. I think it would breed a sense of just always fighting, always contending for truth and falsehood. And when you're doing that, it's easy to be to be caught up maybe in what, uh, um, what did Melanchthon call it? The rabies of the theologians. Right. And so there, I think that there's something of that going on here because they're commended for, he's going to go on to say, hating the Nicolaitans. So they have a good, holy hatred. You, they, they hate those who the Lord hates, but what they're, uh, what he has against them is that they're, they're lacking in love. And I, I think that's actually the, 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 the thing that's right on the nose here, that their their orthodoxy, if you want to put it into terms that we might use, is impeccable. You know, they are testing those who are false. They are finding them false. They are holding to what is true. They hate whom God hates. But their holiness that should go with that orthodoxy has slipped. You know, they are becoming complacent. They're kind of, it's kind of a, a lifeless zeal for the truth. Right. Yeah, I think and, so. And so and and that's why, you know, they, they have become they've abandoned this first love. You know, even though they know what is true, they they don't have the same fire for it. They don't have the same zeal which they once had. And so it's become kind of like you say, this kind of lifeless orthodoxy, a kind of dead orthodoxy, if you want to use that language, even though that's charged in our circles. Um, <laughs> well, I knew you would say that, Zolan. You you are the you know we need a, a pietistic revival, right? Am I speaking your your heart language now? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble one of these days. But but I mean, but the point is, is that yes, they are doing what is right, and and Jesus commends them for what is right. But they are also becoming lifeless in their zeal for it. Yeah, you can. It's almost like right. It's it is a lot of fun to to play whack a mole, right? To smash the and and when you know the things that you're against, there's something good about that. You've got to know where the false teachings are. You've got to be able to identify it and say that's not what we believe. But if that's all that you ever do, I think this is what you mean by dead orthodoxy, right? You're you're forever defined by what you are opposed to, what you are against, and what what can sometimes slip in is that zeal for what you're opposed to becomes all consuming, and the the what you are for gets lost. Right, right. Which is why, and maybe as we kind of go into the break here, I'll just kind of close with this thought. You can add to it if you want that. This it's it's so important then when when Jesus says that he has the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands that he's talking about holding those who teach within the church in his hand and walking among the churches. And so, yes, even though their zeal has slipped, even though they have become somewhat lifeless in their holiness, you know, kind of this deadness in their orthodoxy, yet Jesus is still among them and is holding them in his hand. And so for that reason, they don't have to fear what is going to happen. They just need to return to that first love 
so that they would walk then in that holiness which they first had. Yeah, and you can see this in the what is the threat that he holds out over them. I mean, I think it's important to to point out there's always a threat in these. Mm-hmm. Well, I, not always. I think there's a couple of the letters where there's no where there's no threat, but the threat is that he would remove the lampstand. So if you don't return to your love, you will be lost. Your lampstand, which we take that as a figure for your church, right? Your congregation will cease to be there. It right. will it will no longer exist. So without love, there it won't continue. Right, exactly. But with that, we got to go into our first break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zellan Heidi here today with David Appold, continuing our discussion on the book of Revelation. So we just got done talking about the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2, and now we need to keep moving along if we're going to get through any of these at, <laughs> at any, any kind of speed to the, the letter to the church in Smyrna. So how would you characterize this particular letter and what sets it apart from the other letters? Yeah, Smyrna, there is no, the word repent does not appear in Smyr- in the letter to, the, to Smyrna. So this one, we said before, the, the normal form is Jesus is speaking. He gives some aspect of, of who he is as the glorified Lord. Here, it's that he's the first and the last who died and came to life. And then usually there would be, I know your works. Here's what I commend you for. And here's what I hold against you. So repent. But in Smyrna, there is nothing, they're not, on the one hand, they're not commended for anything, but they're also not, nothing is held against them. So what, what Christ says to them instead is, I know your poverty and I know your, uh, the sufferings that you're enduring. So the problem, if you want to say, put, use that word in Smyrna is not within the church. The problem is what's happening from without. So they are they are being persecuted from the outside. And who are their persecutors, according to the letter? I mean, we're we're given a pretty explicit yeah. description of them. The Jews. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> what what does yeah. the letter say about them? Yes, and those, what does that mean? Right. So it says, and this comes up again later. So it's good to kind of clear the the way here first. It says those who call themselves Jews, but who aren't. And instead, it identifies them as not the synagogue of the Lord, but the synagogue of Satan. And yeah. I think if if our, you know, the, this comes up in the Pauline epistles sometimes, he is truly a Jew who is one spiritually, right? Who are, right. The, who are the sons of Abraham? Well, is it those who belong to Christ or is it those who have rejected Christ? And this is where you get that whole distinction between it's not a matter of you know, ancestry, it's not a matter of lineal descent. There is neither Jew nor Greek, but it's a, it's a question of who has faith in Christ. And that's what makes someone part of, you know, quote unquote, God's chosen people. Right, right. And I, th- I think it's also worth noting here, too, that with the Jews being the synagogue of Satan, it seems to imply that the situation here between the Jews and the Christian church here or the true, you know, the false Jews and the true Jews, if you want to use that kind of language, because I mean, it is, that is implied here, yeah, right? Is that the, the false group here, the synagogue of Satan is much larger 
mm-hmm. and has much more influence right. and is using that influence as a way of attacking the, the smaller Christian church. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's why Christ starts with, I know your poverty, mm-hmm. though, though you are actually rich. So you, you said the word influence. I thought you were going to say income, but of course they, they go together, right? Um, money, <laughs> right. money buys everything. And so uh, the, those who are opposing the Christians, you can, it's not hard, and I don't think it's a stretch, to see what is being implied about them is that they are richer and because of that, they are also more influential and they're using their money. They're using their influence to, in some way, we don't have the exact details here. No, it does give the details. They are imprisoning the Christians and they are going to perhaps even put them to death. Right. Well, and I, I think this is also a case where they're using that influence as a way of causing some of the Christians to apostatize, you know, saying like, you, you you call yourselves, you know, the followers of Jesus, but look at how, you know, pathetic that your church is. Look at how small you are. Why don't you come back over to us? We'll, we'll, we'll welcome you in kind of a thing. And so they're leading people astray through that. And I think that kind of, inf- using that kind of worldly pressure as a way of getting them to fall away from the faith is really what the Smyrnans are struggling with the most. It's not so much just that they're being pushed down and oppressed because it's one thing just to be pushed back, but they're being pressed to the point of where you come, you basically come to the point of saying, well, if I just do this, this pressure will stop. And therefore I can, I don't have to suffer it anymore. Right. Right. I mean, the, there's different kinds of persecution, right? And so the, the threats on a person's life, that that's of course the most dramatic kind of persecution but when you threaten someone's livelihood and you just make it generally miserable to exist and you make it a struggle for people to to earn their money you make it a struggle for them to you know make ends meet that is that's a depriving of a person's life too it's not as dramatic of course but when it's done because you are a christian it's the same what's the you know there's a distinction there but it's it's also that it's the same same general kind of persecution. Right. And so I think that's why Christ's admonition to be faithful in that, you know, that important verse in, in 2 verse 10 that we often use as confirmation verses, which I think is, you know, as, is a good thing. You know, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It is this call to remain faithful even in the face of intense social pressure uh, to conform and social intense social or whatever pressure it might be to give up what makes us Christian in order to escape that pressure. Yeah. So the the and here's where that the vision that he has in chapter one gets the different aspects of what he sees in Christ. Now are you can see that there's a function to these things. So in chapter one, Jesus says, "I am He who died and rose again, and behold, I hold the keys." Uh, to death in Hades in my hand. Well, okay, that's great, Jesus, but (laughs) what does that do for us? Well, now he can give the promise because he has power over death to say the second death, you know, eternal death, eternal condemnation won't hurt you. Right, right. And also, I think it's it's so interesting here. Jesus says, you're going to be persecuted for 10 days, whatever that may mean specifically, but for 10 days, you will have persecution. But what is 10 days in comparison with eternity? Yeah. You know, and I I think that's that's what makes that image of him being the one who has come to life again so important for us. Because, yes, we may have to die once, but then we will live with him who now lives and reigns to all eternity. Yeah. So, I mean, it it really is. It's a beautiful. Revelation's a great book. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, and Smyrna again. What what stands out? I, th- I feel like we're kind of wrapping this letter up. So maybe to summarize the letter, it's less a call to repentance as it is a call to perseverance. And of course, those things <laughs> overlap a great deal. But you can see again the way, and I think this is important for us as as pastors and as preachers. Look at how Jesus speaks to his to his congregations. He he comforts them, but it's not always. Uh, just by saying, "Let me be a you know the shoulder for you to cry on," he calls them to say, "Hey, keep keep going, persevere. We, I'm going to take care of you. Let's go." <laughs> right. And and that right. that I think 
is is more and more the way that that we're preaching, don't you think, Zellen? I mean, that it, you can see the value of that when you're living in a in a place where okay, no one's life is being threatened, but there is just sort of this general kind of it's it's not scorned, but there's just general pressure put on. Don't be so Christian, for goodness right. sakes. You know, just stay in your right. house. Don't go to church. Those those kind of basic things. Right. Yeah. No. I the the call to hold the line kind of a thing to to stand fast in the face of pressure is a comfort for us because you know like you say Jesus is exhorting us to do what he's promising to be with us through in everything you yeah. know so yeah. I think I think it's just wonderful but let's let's move on so that we can get through at least some like I say most of these letters to Pergamum so we've gone further north again and what are we dealing with when we get to Pergamum? What would you say is the basic situation? What are the distinctives of this letter? Yeah, Pergamum is one of the the most interesting, I think, um, because you get a number of groups mentioned here. We didn't talk about it in the first segment in Ephesus, but he's going to mention the some of the problems are the Nicolaitans. There's a group called the Nicolaitans we should talk about. There's a group who holds to what's called the doctrine of Balaam, and uh, they also are dwelling where Satan's throne is. So they've got some some serious issues <laughs> both outside of the church. Satan's throne is in there around them. They live in a an area that's dominated by satanic influence, but also within the church they are they are tolerating false doctrines which of course then lead to uh, false practices. Sure. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start inside the church at Pergamum or do you want to start outside the church let's, at Pergamum? Let's do it in the so in the order of the letter, he mentions first, I know you dwell where Satan's throne is. So what is what's he talking about there? You're gonna throw that one back at me. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm of the opinion that we're t- when he's talking about this, the throne of Satan, that he is talking about the imperial Roman cult the emperor worship which was going on at the time because specifically in Pergamum there was one of these temples set up to the the genius of Caesar set up to, to specifically for his adoration and the reason why I think this is important because if you skip ahead in the book of Revelation to where we're talking about the beasts for example with uh, like the first beast and everything that's going on with him we talked I think we talked about the beasts a little bit in the previous episode but the, Satan gives his authority to the beast. He gives his authority to these worldly oppressive powers. And for that reason, I think you can see his throne being an expression of this worldly evil power. Does that make sense? Or do you want me to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's so in the previous letter, the the Jewish group was called the synagogue of Satan. And here, right. what you're saying is we're not talking about a Jewish group anymore. Now we're talking about the the Romans at that time who are worshiping Caesar and were surely pressuring the Christians to do the same thing. Right. And I think the, the synagogue of Satan in that sense is also showing something about these other groups as well that we're going to talk about. I think they, in, in one way or another, are compromising with this demonic, um, satanic, earthly power. Okay. And so part of being called satanic in this sense is to say we're kind of giving in to worldly pressure and kind of going along so that the, the world will leave us alone, which is why when we get to the Nicolaitans, I, I, I have my opinions on who they are, but we're kind of getting far afield. So <laughs> let's but the, the imperial cult at that time, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to really sum this up succinctly is that they they believe that the emperors at least in some form, uh, represent a divine or quasi-divine you know, person. Some of the emperors uh, were referred to with titles specifically like Lord and God, Dominus et Deus. Sacrifice was offered to them. Worship was offered to them. Now, this gets much more severe as the time goes by within the Roman Empire, so that the most the, the grossest expressions of this aren't going to come for another couple of hundred years before you know the, the empire actually becomes Christianized. But at this time already, you have these temples which are being set up, and these emperors, or at least some aspect of these emperors, are being worshipped as divine. 
as because they believed that they would receive some sort of benefit yeah. through this worship. And the and the goal there, I mean, you can see why why would they why would Caesar worship be attractive? I think you can you can see you know say if if our listeners are familiar with the city of God by Saint Augustine, the goal of the Roman state was was not <laughs> to se- there was no separation right between church and state that's maybe an anastric right. and that's maybe an anachronism to talk about but the caesar's power was always meant and and the worship of caesar the un- the unification of the roman people in worshiping caesar or offering him sacrifices was always meant to express the grandeur and the glory of rome and as the more glorious Rome is, the more glorious, you know, the better off it is for the people. At least that's the promise that's held out, right? Right. But right. what what ends up happening, of course, is that there is demonic activity in these things, and it's never just let's be patriotic. And isn't it all? Isn't it so great that we live in a wonderful empire of Rome? There's always some sinister, dark motive behind it. Well, and especially because the emperor is regarded as uh, the father of his country. You know, that was actually one of the titles that many of them took for themselves. And it does kind of have this, you know, paternalistic, I'm going to take care of my children, so to speak, because, you know, the empire is my family. I am the father, the, 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 the patriarchal figure of the whole empire. I will provide for all of you. And so you could see how this kind of divine provision, you know, provide getting the things that we need from day to day, including safety, including peace or whatever, could come from that very idea. But the reason why that's so problematic, of course, and maybe something we need to consider in our own day as government becomes far more centralized than Rome ever was, is that, you know, the government is promising us things that really only properly belong to God. And that's exactly why the Caesars calling themselves Dominus et Deus, you know, Lord and God, was so problematic for the Christian. Because he's basically saying, I'm going to be the one who gives you your daily bread. Yeah, serve me, trust me, and it'll all go well for you. And the the reason that this is a pressure to the Christians is because by refusing to go along with that, they also then would cut themselves off from you know, Caesar's benevolent hand. So if you're not going to offer the incense, which I I don't know if that's going on yet at this time, but bear with me. If if you won't offer the incense to Caesar, then you're not going to get the benefits of Caesar. If you're not going to the gladiator games, and if you're not coming along and offering the sacrifices to the gods, well, you're not going to get the welfare and you're not going to get, you know, we're, we're not going to protect you. You're on your own. Right. Yeah, the, the, the incense thing is a later thing, which is fine because it still makes its point. Yeah. And especially because later again, Romans would increasingly regard Christians as enemies of humanity, as, you know, just kind of generally opposed to the welfare that they're trying to find. That's why Roman persecution of the church increases as time goes on. Jewish persecution, of course, was very early on. In fact, that's what the New Testament talks about. But Roman persecution kind of increases as time goes along because of these reasons, you know, because of the the imperial cult and all those sorts of things. So in all right. So in the midst of that, the in Pergamum, they are commended for resisting this, right, that you have held fast to my name. And they even mention it even mentions a particular martyr named Antipas who was killed. We don't have the details of his death, but he was killed for for his faith. So they're they're commended for that. But then you go to the internal problems, what we're calling the internal problems of the congregation or of that church. And it mentions two figures, Zelwyn. There's a guy or there's a group who believes the doctrine of Balaam, and there's a group who holds to the doctrine of uh, the Nicolaitans. Which one do we want to take first? Well, we'll just do an order again. So when we're talking about Balaam, then, uh, who briefly, who is Balaam in the Old Testament? And what is what is the teaching yeah. that's being taught here? Balaam is a great, I, I, I kind of like Balaam. He's got the great prophecy about, behold, I see him, but not near. I behold him, but far off, a star shall rise out of Jacob. So remember when the Israelites come into Canaan, 
the Moabites. No, this is when they're in the wilderness still. The Moabites, right. I think it's the Moabites and their king, whose name is Balak, he kind of hires Balaam, who's some, you know, seer, I think is the term that's used, some sort of man who has contact with the gods. And he wants to hire him to come and curse Jacob, to curse Israel. So Balaam comes, and this is the story with the donkey, Balaam's donkey, who, you know, won't go. And so Balaam starts kicking him, right? And eventually Balaam tells Balak, look, I can't curse Israel because the Lord, and you know, there's this ambiguity in Balaam. Does he actually believe in the Lord or is he, is he just talking about the Lord within his pan, you know, his uh, pantheism and the, the whole pagan sort of worldview that he has? I tend to lean towards that, but he, he says, I can't curse Israel. And I can only bless them because the Lord won't let me, he won't let me curse them. So it sounds like he's a a fairly good character, right? And he does give that great prophecy about Christ. But then later he is mentioned, I believe in the book of Numbers a little bit later, if if, if I I might be confusing that with Deuteronomy, as having led the people of Israel into sexual immorality and into some kind of idolatry, some sort of um, syncretism from the, the true right. worship of the Lord. Yeah, the, the, the matter of Baal Peor was, Baal, was Balaam's doing. And uh, that was something that was held against Israel because of their, with their sexual immorality with the, the daughters of Moab at that time, and also the idolatry that went along with that immorality. And so what is it that has been, I mean, what, what has been transferred forward here then? In, in the last little bit that we have in this section. What is the teaching of Balaam in Pergamum? Yeah, well, those two things are mentioned again here. The the practice of meat sacrifice to idols. And here, you know, you can hear echoes of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, look, you can eat it. It's not, you know that it's not, by eating the food, by buying the food that's sold in the marketplaces, you are not participating in idol worship. But I think what's mentioned here is probably actual participation in those things. Right. Because it, it mentions the meat sacrificed to idols, and then it also talks about sexual immorality, which is interesting that those two things always go together, right, Zelwyn? That the, right. um, the worship of idols is almost always accompanied by some sort of sexual depravity. We might wait till after the break to talk about those things, but those are the two things mentioned. All right. Well, we'll come back to those in just a moment after the break. Stick around. This is Word Fitly Spoken. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Apold, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. Well, it it certainly seems like we're not going to get through all of the letters today, which is fine. There's a lot to cover here. In fact, probably even a lot more than we're covering right now. I mean, we we could talk about all of these letters probably at great length, just for a whole episode. But we're trying to at least give it a good feel for what's going on here. And so we're going to pick up again where we were talking about Pergamum and especially talking about the teaching of Balaam. So, David, did you want to continue that thought? I mean, where did, where did you want to go with where, what you were saying? Yeah, so we left off just 
mentioning the the two aspects of the false teaching of Balaam, and it, it doesn't mention like here's ex- here's exactly what this figure who um, John calls Balaam or Jesus calls Balaam is named, and here's exactly what he's teaching. But the false doctrine leads to these a twofold false practice, and that's first of all participation in idol worship, and then I think going right along with that is there's there's some kind of sexual depravity happening or sexual immorality. And so I think it's worth talking here, Zelwyn, about why, what's the link between those two things? Why, why would, maybe put it this way, why would, why would a Christian even be tempted? It seems impossible for us to imagine going to the temple of Apollos or Zeus or whoever the Roman gods were in, in the city of Pergamum seems impossible for us to think like, yeah, that would be an option for a Christian. (laughs) Right. Well, I think it it really does boil down to a lot of what Smyrna was also struggling with, and that is the intense social pressure to do these things. You know, that this was expected of you as a member of the city and probably as, you know, as a Roman in general that you would you'd want to seek the welfare of the city you know you want to do everything that your the city's going to thrive to make sure that it's going to get everything that it needs and and the very the very heart of the city is not civic events it's not sporting events it's not you know the the school events i'm just trying to put it in our terms the very heart of this city is its worship the worship at the temple yeah I'm thinking of like, think about the pressure that's put on us to get out and vote. You know, I'm just trying to think of a, a, a good analogy to like, what makes the polis go? And in Rome, right. in Pergamum, it is, you've got to go and offer the sacrifices, right? You've got to go to the events and the events always have some kind of idol worship, some kind of you know, this, the feasting of the, the meat that was offered in this temple or that temple. And so I'm sure there was family pressure for Christians who were, you know, part of the church, but maybe their whole family didn't come in. Whenever you're around your family, there's pressure. Hey, we got to go do this. And then just the, the pressure of being a good, a good boy or a good girl in the city, you got to go and do it. Right. Well, and that, that's exactly the point. So that, this intense pressure to go and to do these things and to participate in them means that they were giving into the teaching of Balaam, you know, that they are, they're not resisting this pressure. They're not fighting against it and saying that no, we as a Christian can't actually do these things, but they're saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe we'll just kind of compromise on this one thing. We'll just kind of compromise on this one thing. You know, it, Paul's told us that, you know, idols aren't really anything. So what's the big deal if we go do this, you know, or, you know, this is part of what makes the city go, as you said. So we should try to do as much as we can to make sure that the city's going. You know, we don't want to be seen as unneighborly. We don't want to be seen as bad citizens. We want to do everything that is going to help everybody else out. We want to be good people, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that, and that, so when the Christian starts to divide in his mind, like I can go and participate in these things without really in my heart participating in them. It's a very easy, you can see how that's kind of the initial stumbling block is don't even go into the temple. So if you never go into the temple of these other gods, great, you're you're not going to be pulled into actually believing that they're worth serving. But once you start to to kind of fudge on the on the boundaries. Once you break down some of those initial boundaries that separate you from the pagan world, it's not a long, you're, you know, you're starting to go downhill. And that slope, you know, a slippery slope fallacy is only a fallacy, fallacy if the slope isn't slippery. But when it is, <laughs> it's, it's not a fallacy. <laughs> well, exactly. And I, I, I like the way you put it there too, that you know, that if we're trying to always fudge on the details and say, okay, this is where, you know, I'm going to set the boundary line right here, kind of a thing, you know, kind of a me and my girlfriend will go only this far and no further. Well, pretty soon you find out you're pushing that boundary just a little bit further each time until you end up falling into something you never intended to do in the first place. Yeah. And I, I use that that sexual analogy fairly intentionally because, 
Jesus connects this idolatry with sexual immorality. Now, why does he do that, David? Well, I think there's we can answer this a couple ways. One, I think when when a person is out of out of control spiritually, the the most natural the strongest physical impulse at least in in many people is going to be the sexual drive. And so lust often is the prevailing you know it's it is the strongest kind of temptation that many that many people will face and when you're out of control the these things that have strong impulses are h- much harder to resist so if you're if you're fudging on the details of like worshiping the lord and also worshiping some idols you're you're out of control and it's going to manifest itself in the sexual practices that you engage in I don't know. Maybe there's some other other ways to say that. What do you think, Selwyn? Well, I I don't think it's no out of bounds to say that you know the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, frequently presents uh, spiritual unfaithfulness in terms of adultery. You see this especially in the the major prophets, for example. You know that uh, Israel has gone whoring after other gods, and so I I do think that when when you have that kind of spiritual disordering or that spiritual lack of control, that it's also going to express itself very frequently in a physical lack of control, in this case, a, a sexual lack of control. So it's it's often not a very big step to go from false teaching to some, you know, terrible false, you know, bad practice like this kind of sexual immorality. And Lord knows how often we've talked about, you know, some of even these uh, occultic groups, which we've talked about in yeah. the modern age, which use sexual imagery and sexual practices as part of their as part of their teachings. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think seeing the you know, we talk always about the means of grace, but the devil kind of parodies, if you, if you want to go with, with this, the devil parodies um, God's means of grace with his own means of disgrace, right? You could put it that way. And sure. I think he certainly uses sexual, the sexual temptations that are so prevalent, especially in our times. You think of just the the prevalence of, of pornography the, and surely there is demonic activity in incorporated into this stuff. And so it's never just a matter of like, I'm just going to log on here and go to this website. And, you know, these things happen within my body and my soul is untouched. There is a correlation between the demons and sexual practices that maybe we don't need to get into that today. But I I do think that that's, that's one of the reasons why false worship always is, is going to be connected with a sexual, some sexual sin. And that's what made this thing especially so attractive to the people of to the Christians in Pergamum. You know, they were not allowing they were they're basically allowing themselves to indulge in these things too far. And it was leading them further and further and further astray. But what about the Nicolaitans? We talked about them once before. You know, who who are they, in your opinion? I mean, what can we know about them and what can we kind of infer about them? Yeah. So the Ephesians hate the Nicolaitans like Jesus does Jesus hates them too and the in uh, Pergamum they they tolerate them right they like them and so or at least some do and again does it mention here their practices i'm just looking at it here you know it just says some also hold to the teaching of the nicolaitans i think it was one of the church fathers irenaeus i think called them antinomians they were compromisers. I think you and I have used that word, Zelwyn, um, sort of lackadaisical in their attitudes towards things. Maybe the kind of people who say, you know, don't take the, don't take your religion so seriously. Just, re- just let yourself, let yourself go a little bit. You know, what, what's the harm in a fourth glass of wine, let alone a third glass? <laughs> right, right. Well, I think especially because when we met them the first time in Ephesus, and remember, it is, you know, Ephesus is commended for its testing of false teaching. And the, the thing that it's, you know, kind of condemned for is it's is lovelessness, you know, it's kind of lack of zeal. So I think in Ephesus, they are resisting them because of their kind of compromising attitude. And here in Pergamum, because Pergamum is already kind of given over to this kind of compromising, especially with the world. That that's the reason why there are some among them who, you know, kind of lean towards that way. You know, we'll just kind of go along, 
We'll we'll play nice with these things. You know, we'll, we 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 can do what we do and still be good Christians. Yeah, I wanted to say fourth glass of wine so that Willie spits out his ginger ale. <laughs> and when it, when he listens to this, yes, absolutely. T teetotaling Willie. Yeah, we we love you, Willie. Yes. We love you. So, okay, but. What do we want to say in conclusion? Because I do, I do want to get onto Thyatira, so we can finish at least one chapter today. Yeah. So, what do I, we want to say about Pergamum? I think uh, maybe maybe wrapping it up. Look at the promise Jesus gives him. So he says, um, "Repent, or else I'll come to you with my sword." But then the promise that he gives to those who remain faithful is twofold. He says, "I will give you some hidden manna." So. Don't don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. I've got some better food for you. And then he, he also mentions this white stone with a, a secret name written on it. So Jesus is, I mean, just think of this. If Jesus is handing out these little secret medallions, don't you want one? Is that one? I, I sure. want one, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. okay, what's the what's the the context here? What does that word mean? I think it has something to do with the future life, the future participation in the city of God. For Don't worry so much about, you know, participating in the city of man. You've got a better city prepared for you. And I think those white stones have something to do with life in the city of God. Yeah. And I, the reason why I think you're right on that is because the stones themselves are stones that were used for votes like in Greek assemblies, like you would cast your stone and that would be voting. So it kind of has the civic kind of connotation with it. Yeah. You also have the the names, which are the name which is placed upon the Christians in Philadelphia, for example. You know, I'm going to put you in the temple and I'm going to give you the name of my God, the name of this, you know, my name and the name of the new city. So it, it has to do with this futureness that is that Jesus is giving to them. But I, I do also want to say that I think with the sword imagery, before we go into Thyatira, I think the sword imagery is important, if only because, you know, Hebrew's posting a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the sharper than any the word of God sharper than any two edged sword. That this this lackadaisical, compromising, wishy washiness of Pergamum will be overcome by the the sword which comes forth from his mouth, which of course is the living word of yeah, God. Absolutely. That's good. But we need to get on to Thyatira so we can finish chapter two today. So <laughs> we're now starting to head in generally in a southeasterly direction. We've gone as far north as we're going to in this region. We come now to the city of Thyatira. You know, who are they? What makes them different? And what's the situation? Yeah, okay. So start again with the vision of Jesus or how he describes himself here. He says, I have eyes like a flame of fire. And my feet are burnished bronze. So this, the, the fiery eyes of Jesus, I think, goes back to Daniel, where Daniel sees the, the Ancient of Days sitting upon his judgment throne, and there's fire going all around it. Well, now Jesus is, I think, when it talks about his eyes being a flame, you're supposed to see him as the judge. He is sitting there with the Ancient of Days, right? And He's, he speaks very harshly, I guess we could say, severely to the Thyatirans, and they deserve it, right? I, one, of the, one of the difficulties we often have when, uh, when we come to judgment scenes is we sympathize with the wrong group, right? <laughs> and so we always, right. with the accusation, well, this is an unfair judgment. No, it's not, right? This is that the Lord never judges falsely. So what he says is just. And what he brings up to them first, there is some commendation, right? Their faithfulness, love, and service. And then that mention of that great term, patient endurance, right? But the problem, and what the letter is mostly devoted to is this problem, is this woman Jezebel. So you you tolerate the teaching of Jezebel. Right, right. And what what exactly is she teaching the Thyatirans to do? I mean, what what makes her so dangerous? Oh, I think she's, you know, there's overlap, certainly, with the Nicolaitans. There's overlap with the Balaam group. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, and she killed all the prophets of God, or Elijah thought she killed everybody, right? And she right. she led them. It's not like the Israelites in those days were particularly faithful, and she led them astray, but she she led them deeper into 
idol worship deeper into the Baals and the Asherim. And here, again, there's a connection between food sacrifice to idols and the practice of sexual immorality. So same name, but or different name, but same practices as before. And so how much was she really different than the Balaam group? I don't know. It had the same sort of practical outcome. Sure. Well, practically speaking, yeah, they, they end up being the same kind of thing. But I think I think there's an important note in verse 24 here. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. I think I think that's an important note there because Jezebel, whoever she was, was presenting herself as a prophetess and in that sense was presenting a kind of deeper knowledge, perhaps mm-hmm. a deeper mm-hmm. revelation of something. I don't want to call this Gnosticism because that's that's anachronistic at this point in time. But well, it is that <laughs> everything's Gnosticism, Zelwyn. Uh, that's why I say it's anachronistic yeah, yeah. at this point in time. But it is certainly the same kind of impulse. This idea that I've been given this deeper understanding of something, and that's why I can do the things that I'm doing. That's why you can do the things that we're doing. Yeah, it seems wrong, but I know better. Yeah, you you simple Christians wouldn't get it, right? You haven't right. learned you haven't learned the deeper things, and it's interesting that the, the deep things of Satan is not Jesus's term. He says that's what some of you who engage in this stuff call it. So to learn the deep things of Satan, it's kind of like, you know, why would that be attractive? Well, I think the desire to tap into hidden knowledge or secret power, right? The desire to tap into these spiritual realities that draws a person in. And before they know it, they're kind of lost in, you know, they're lost in this satanic stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and especially with, you, you see this all the time. I mean, you have all kinds of groups throughout history, Gnostic and otherwise, who, you know, claim to have this kind of secret knowledge or this, you know, we, we can do this. And because we have a prophetess or a prophet among us who's teaching us these things, uh, it really does in more practical terms for the average Christian boil down to problems of authority you know, that we're listening to this person because they, they're attractive to us and we're going by their authority alone and not just the authority of God. It also comes down to issues of uh, that kind of a, a separatism that comes very naturally to the to our hearts. You know, we want to set ourselves apart from the, the rest of you people kind of a thing. And this is why I'm, you know, a, a much better Christian than you are. You know, it, it is an impulse that still threatens us today. You know, that's and that's why I hesitate so strongly to just call it Gnosticism as if that's just going to explain it, because then it makes it seem like something that we can just resist very, very easily. Yeah, the and the, the woman Jezebel here sounds an awful lot like the um, the whore of Babylon of I think it's chapter 18 and 19, right. maybe, maybe 17 and 18. They're they're very similar in their in how they're going to be described and how they're ultimately thrown down. So Jesus says, "I've given her time to repent, and she hasn't." Um, and so now, what's left is to come and actually execute judgment on it. And I th- I think that's again, this is another aspect of God's judgment that is perhaps uncomfortable to us, but it is it is part of how He by judging the enemies of God's people and and putting them down he actually vindicates us and uh and vindicates the faithful and so it it is there is a promise in there there is a comfort in that um threat that the Lord Jesus is not going to tolerate this stuff forever right and i i we'll go just a little bit long in this segment and that's okay because there's a lot of good stuff that we need to bring out here but I think it's important there to say, too, that Jesus has given her time to repent, and now her time her time has passed. She's not given another opportunity. She is being judged. The woes who commit adultery with her are the ones who are undergoing this final test. Yeah. Right? I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those, you know, that is her judgment, and she's going to suffer that judgment. Those of you who want to go after her will suffer the same judgment with her. 
the test is for her followers, no longer for her. Yeah. And the call is again, repent, right? Um, right. Repent. Yeah. I do want to say kind of as a closing thought to this letter too, the reason why I think this has to do with this kind of questions of authority is because this is exactly the way Jesus ends this letter. You know, the one who conquers and keeps uh, my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You know, he's quoting Psalm two there, you know, and I'll give him the morning star, you know, this kind of authority, which, which is properly belongs to Jesus. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jezebel apparently was claiming this authority for herself, you know, and to, and this is what made her stumble. But Jesus is saying, if you want real authority, if you want to really truly reign as kings, then follow after me and do my works. And then I will give these things to you. Yeah. And see here, this is, this goes back to something we said in the first segment here, Zelwyn, like, are these letters like the different dispensations of church history or di the different, are they written for different times? And, you know, we have to kind of locate ourselves within the timeline here and say, well, we're really under the age of, you know, the, the Sardesian age of the church. I, I think that the, the, if you go down that route, you end up kind of leaving the, the different letters. You, you kind of, you only pick one that really applies to you. And I think you can see as we're going through this, hopefully our listeners who've made it this far can see like there is something in each of these letters that is applicable within the life of, of any congregation. It's not just Ephesus or Pergamum, but I mean, this stuff relates to what's going on in North Dakota. It relates to what's going on in Kentucky, certainly very strongly. It relates to what's going on today. It will yeah. relate to what's going on tomorrow. It is a letter written to every time and every church, even as it speaks to the situations of these individual churches. So, well, David, do you want to, do you have any final closing thoughts before we wrap up for the day? No, I think, I mean, getting through four of those was, you know, we had kind of set out to try to do all seven in one. Like I said, there's there's seven letters, there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. We'll have to remember this and see if we can. Maybe we'll be able to get five seals done, but we'll we'll come back to the final three next time: Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, and uh, and finish up those letters. I would just kind of close with with a repeat of the the general form. I mean this this is the form of how Christ preaches to his to his church: is here's who I am. I commend you, I hold this against you, I call you to repentance, and I give you a promise. And those that five-fold layout, I think, is helpful just to repeat here at the end. Yeah. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes. Well, very good, David. Thanks for being with us today, and we look forward to the next section. You've been listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you've heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple. God love you, and God bless. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it.